Hey guys, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is so big, I had to upgrade my Google Drive storage plan just to hold this episode. Stay tuned to find out who's heating up the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 18. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey guys, welcome to the 18th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show, where it's now legal for our little show to have presentation, data visualization, and analytics get together and do fun stuff together. Yeah. And I'll also be announcing something super duper exciting on my next episode of the show. So stay tuned for that. But for now, let's kick this off with today's awe-inspiring magical guest. What's up, guys? I am excessively excited to bring you today's guest. He's co-founder and former CEO of Moz, arguably the most worshipped and revered search engine optimization and digital think tank out there and creator of a suite of amazing SEO and digital tools that I use to grow my site traffic on a daily basis. He's the face of the amazing Whiteboard Friday explainer videos. It's made it a digital household name. He's presented around the world at over 100 events in the last three years, and he's typically in the top three rated sessions at every one. He's co-author of two books on SEO and co-founder of Inbound.org. He's an unstable addict of all things content, search, and social, lucky for us. And in his teeny tiny spare time, he likes to gallivant around the world with his wife, Geraldine, and then read about it on her superbly delightful travel blog. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Wizard of Moz, Rand Fishkin. Welcome. Thank you, Leah. It's uh, a far too kind introduction, but but I suppose I'll I'll somehow have to try and live up to it. Well, give it your best shot, and, and we'll let you know how you okay. do. Okay, all right, sounds good. Yeah, you can rate me after the podcast. <laughs> I'll be sending a survey. <laughs> so, Rand, it, it's no secret that you're somewhat of a legend in the field of digital marketing. But I also really appreciate you as a professional speaker, and that's mostly what we'll be focusing on today. But first, we all love to hear a good origin story. Tell us a little bit about how you. Fell into the digital shindig? Yeah, I dropped out of college in 2001, two classes away from graduating at the University of Washington uh, here in Seattle. And I started building websites for my mom's small business marketing consultancy clients, people like dental offices and small banks. I did a little bit of work in usability and then we had been subcontracting some SEO folks, but we were no longer able to afford them. <laughs> and so uh, this is in the early 2000s. And so I started learning the practice myself and found it very frustrating and difficult. Um, the world of SEO is, well, was at that time very opaque. The search engines were really quiet, even more so than they are today about what things worked and didn't and why they did. Even a lot of the best practitioners in the industry kept their trade secrets to themselves. And I found that really tough. I didn't, I didn't believe in that model and I didn't like it. And so I've made it uh, my personal mission the last dozen years or so to make digital marketing more transparent and in particular search engine optimization. 
Well, I can say that you've pretty much accomplished that. I mean, you just have a prolific body of work really trying to break down the inner workings of search engines and all of the different ranking factors. I mean, I use these on a daily basis, so it's just been a tremendous contribution. So, you know, obviously presentation of this sort of information has become a core part of your role and persona. When did that really happen for you in your career? Yeah, I went to my first professional conference in March of 2005. That was Search Engine Strategies in New York, which used to attract many thousands of attendees. This is back when Danny Sullivan was still running uh, Search Engine Strategies. And um, that event really kickstarted my interest in conferences. I think one of the things I, I found there that was so remarkable and amazing was the camaraderie and connections between the speakers and the willingness to share information that normally they would keep you know, off the web. Mm -hmm. This was sort of like a, here's the real secret tools of the trade and processes of how we do things. And, and I, I think I got a little obsessed. So the next time I had an opportunity, which was probably maybe six months later, there was uh, a search and strategies event in Toronto and I pitched to speak there and got accepted on a panel primarily because I had been blogging for a couple of years and had built up uh, kind of a, a small, but you know, I would say well-known in that professional sphere following of the content I was putting out. And it, that included a lot of coverage of the speakers at SES. I remember my first SES New York as well. Oh. It might have been 2005 or six, actually. That's so funny. And I do also remember the energy that was there. You, oh, yeah. you really felt like you were walking away with this secret prescription for all these things and breaking through these barriers that you didn't have. And, and that's, I think, when I fell in love with conferences in general. Yeah. Um, so uh, that's so interesting. So I'd like to talk a little bit about Whiteboard Friday. It's immensely popular. And actually, if you're familiar with Jim Stern, he's the head of eMetrics and he's our beloved godfather of digital analytics. He actually, he was my guest on episode five. He mentioned you and Whiteboard Friday as his prime example of A plus stellar presentation. Oh, wow. So, you know, I would love to get and I mean, I've, I've seen countless ones, but I would love to get a behind the scenes look. You know, are you able to share what the brainstorming and planning process for Whiteboard Friday looks like from a presentation standpoint? Yes, I am. But it's going to be, uh, let's see, embarrassingly light on, <laughs> on process. And oh, man. It's true. So <laughs> I would say probably half the time I will email uh, the two guys, Michael Bird and, and Elijah Teague, who are here at Moz, who do the filming. Uh, and I shoot them an email before we actually film, usually the night before, and say, hey, here's a topic I'm thinking about. And that is usually coming from the reading that I do on the web. Uh, I read a lot of Q&A forums. Obviously, Moz has a Q&A forum where I pull a lot of content from, uh, very active on Twitter, very active in uh, a lot of discussion forums like inbound.org. Um, and if there's a hot topic or something in the space that I realize, hey, we haven't covered this on Whiteboard Friday, and this is something people are curious about in the SEO world, uh, I will you know, write up a title and maybe a few bullet point description and send that off to Elijah and Michael so that they can start to come up with an idea for the opening shot. 
Mm. Uh, so with Whiteboard Friday, I don't know if you are aware, but one of the things we found um, probably about four or five years ago was that the rate at which people click through from social media, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter over to Whiteboard Friday and the rate with which they actually click that play button was very closely related to the creativity and quality and interest that we could provide in the opening shot. You mean the thumbnail? The thumbnail, yeah. Where and so spend, you're wearing a, a, an extraordinarily ridiculous costume, which is like my favorite. In many of them, yeah. So <laughs> many of them have feature, you know, ridiculous costumes or, um, you know, photoshopped visuals or uh, something that represents what's going to be in the video, but then has some playfulness to it as well. Right. And that uh, that's what they're doing some planning around. But then we have a studio here at Moz that is all set up for Whiteboard Friday. There's a big, you know, big giant whiteboard, mm-hmm. other rooms soundproofed. It's got uh, a nice video camera in it. This was not always the case, obviously. <laughs> sure. You know, um, we've evolved to get uh, much more polished with, with Whiteboard Friday. But so I, the other half of the time, I walk into the room and think about it for five minutes and then start drawing something. So not a lot of planning uh, goes into Whiteboard Friday. It's it's surprisingly spontaneous. I will say this, though. When we have guest presenters, they usually come prepared with an outline and some notes, as well as a few visuals that they know they want to draw. That's annoyingly awesome because... <laughs> I, you know, I can, I can create a great slide. I'm pretty good at that, but whiteboarding as a skill is not something I've mastered. I can barely draw stick figures. And can you talk about, was this a skill that you honed over time? Because I look at those diagrams and I think I would never, ever be able to just come up with that, even planning something like that. I think it's more achieved through long effort and many years of filming hundreds of these and less an innate skill. So I suspect very strongly that if you filmed 50 whiteboard Fridays in a row, uh, the next 50 that you did would easily get to that quality bar. Um, it's not a, it's not as challenging as it looks. Um, and certainly my stick figures are about all I can do. I am not an illustrator by any means. Uh, I don't have, you know, great, uh, visual or drawing skills, but I do have, I think because I have a, um, a lot of history trying to explain things in the digital marketing world to people, mm-hmm. um, and then building, you know, lots of slides and blog posts and visuals. I have this idea of what I want to convey through, through the whiteboard. Ah, so there's no secret recipe that you're going to be sharing today. That's fine. No, I, <laughs> that's, sorry. <laughs> I've looked at different books, like I think one was Back of the Napkin or things like that. But um, I do find that now I sketch presentation slides or like a data visualization for my podcast makeovers. Mm-hmm. Um, if I don't sketch out the visualization, I just have no idea where to start. So I guess that translates over. Yeah. Part of this is need and demand too. So for, um, well, my, my schedule is obviously insane now, even (laughs) now, but, uh, you know, for seven years that I was CEO at Moz, I was also filming whiteboard Fridays. I only had an hour to come up with a topic to draw it up, to film it, and then to take that opening shot. And so you have to find a way to squeeze all of that in to that hour. And I think because of that, I got good at coming up with this stuff fast and with not really having a process. 
So it's almost like a forced time crunch enabled total focus. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> you know, when I'm in Whiteboard Friday, I am thinking and doing nothing else. Wow. So I'm a serial procrastinator and I'll usually have three or four projects up in the air, but it's the one that's due in 10 minutes. That's the only one that I can concentrate on. So actually that, that's really interesting advice. I know I'm, uh, I'm, I'm dreading this. I follow a similar pattern in my own professional life and I'm dreading this because I have a book that I need to deliver by the end of this year. Oh God. And I really need to, um, I need to carve out time to work on that substantially because I cannot, I cannot just wait until the day before. <laughs> well, I'll be happy to send you threatening emails once in a oh, while, yeah. if you like. Yeah, my editor, in fact, recommended that I send a friend many large checks, like $1,000 <laughs> checks, to uh, organizations that I hate, right? That, that, that would make donations to organizations that I hate, and that uh, that person would then deliver to those organizations or mail to those organizations if I didn't complete my chapters. Oh. Which I thought was pretty clever. Kind of a, a nasty penalty. Um, that is nasty. But then the like United Association Against Kittens would get funded if you have like a sick day. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about that. No, that I've I've heard of things like that. And actually, our mutual friend Jeff Sauer of Jeffalytics is my accountability buddy. So we meet every Wednesday where we have one thing we need to accomplish every week and we yell at each other in a friendly way if we don't accomplish that. So I can understand that accountability outside is essential. So Yeah, that's cool. Well tell Jeff I send my best. I will. I definitely will. So Whiteboard Friday, as Jim Stern said, it's an exceptional example of how you are able to break down complex concepts in a very approachable and engaging way. And this is not easy stuff. This is not how to make a souffle. It's, you know, digital is complicated. So one of the ways that I think that you accomplished this was using Mr. Roger Mosbot. Mm -hmm. I love him. Um, he was featured in your awesome Whiteboard Friday on eight rules for exceptional slide presentations. So obviously I found that one particularly interesting. Oh, great. Um, he, was, he was pretty mean to you in that one. He said that you, and I quote, really sucked when you started out. So ouch. <laughs> um, and, you know, having watched a number of your keynotes, I find that really hard to believe that this doesn't come naturally. So can you talk about your evolution as a speaker? Yeah, I... So first off, I agree with Roger, especially since I probably wrote the script for him, uh, <laughs> that in the early days of my presentations, I was not good. I would not have been rated in the you know, top 50% of presenters. Uh, I had a lot of disfluencies. I did not make great slides. I used a lot of text and bullet points. I presented a lot of information that was already well known to much of the audience, which I think is the death knell in digital marketing conferences. And over time, I think I grew this obsession with watching other speakers present, seeing what I loved, hated, thought was, you know, wasted time or time extremely well spent, thought was a beautiful slide that presented information clearly versus a beautiful slide that presented no information at all. And then just became obsessed with fixing that in my own presentations, right? With getting to this, this great place. I kind of, I think one of the other discoveries that I had is that there's not a lot of value in going to a conference 
and presenting unless you are in the top, let's say, 25% of presenters there. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is because, you know, and I observe this at event after event, basically what happens afterward is people, uh, you know, connect in social settings, they go out for meals, they go to the party or the, you know, whatever's being sponsored there, and they talk about which speakers they like best. And then they keep notes from those folks and they start following those folks on Twitter and they visit those folks' websites and they check out the tools those people mention. And the rest of the speakers, they kind of ignore because there's too much. You know, if you go to an event and there's 10 speakers in a day or 12 or, you know, there's panels and there's 30, you can't possibly listen to and implement all the things that all of them said. And so you focus on the ones that stood out in your mind. And I think that that, that means there's kind of a uh, dramatically lower value of spending, you know, the hours and the dollars getting on a plane, staying at a hotel, taking a cab, losing a day or two or three to an event, presenting and then being mediocre, <laughs> you know, or pretty good but not the person that everyone remembers. And so that became a, a focus of mine. I did work with a, a speech coach for a little while, specifically on disfluencies, because I said words like like and um <gasps> far too often for my own preference. <laughs> well, and I'd, you know, I'd watch Whiteboard Friday and I'd have this frustration watching myself. You know mm -hmm. how sometimes you listen to a recording of yourself and you think, oh God, is that really what I sound like? Every time my podcast goes out. <laughs> and yet you, you have a phenomenal voice. You sound like you're an NPR host. Oh, stop. No, thank I, you. <laughs> I think that that's something that um, I put conscious effort into. And then the same was true with slides. I actually had contracted a professional uh, presentation maker, a, a guy here in Seattle named June Young, who runs uh, ZoomCom. And June and his team made amazing presentations, right? Visually stunning, conveyed information phenomenally well. I basically would work with him for uh, an hour or two. We'd meet in a room with a whiteboard and draw up some stuff. And then he'd go away and turn that into these beautiful slides that got across these complex concepts. And the unfortunate part was I think his prices went from about $6,000 for a slide deck to about $10,000. Wow. So, um, <laughs> so I started stealing and, um, you know, allocating a lot of his techniques in terms of animations and visuals and clarity of information. Uh, and I refer people to him all the time. So hopefully he isn't too mad at me for stealing his, uh, his process, but I'm sure he's not, that has, that was also really helpful. So yeah, it, it's a long development, right? I started speaking 12 years ago, 11 years ago, and I would say it's only in the last five years, six years that the statistic you brought up when you introduced me of, you know, my presentations almost always being in the, in the top three mm -hmm. uh, at events has really been true. Prior to that, wasn't the case. So it doesn't just happen overnight. It's It can be a long haul. And, you know, I actually love what you said about focus when you go to a conference, you know, I hope that all industry speakers are listening. They're not, but anyone who is, um, to focus, get into that top 25%. If you really want to make a lasting impact and defy mediocrity, 
You know, I, I absolutely love that because you're serving the audience. Your mission and obsession to bring out the best presenter in you has only served your audiences. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. I think one thing I've discovered that is interesting about audiences in the digital marketing world is that we as a whole tend to be very forgiving of less polished, uh, less um, slick professional. Yeah. Less <laughs> slick uh, presentations. There's, there's a lot of comfort with, Hey, that's just a normal person speaking in their normal voice, having a usual conversation. Uh, they, they don't look like they're, uh, speaking from lines that they've practiced and they haven't memorized their timing and their emotions and all this kind of thing, like, like many professional presenters do. All of that is totally forgiven so long as you present actionable, useful information that they have not heard before and that they can go and implement to improve their campaigns. You do that and almost all the other presentation sins are forgiven. And yet I, I feel like that alone is holding back so many speakers in, in our field and in many, I think, technology and marketing fields. I'm so glad that you mentioned that because I actually had that as one of my questions that came from your article on how to cheat at creating great tech marketing presentations. Loved it. Um, Thanks. That was my favorite tip, exclusively actionable advice, because I agree that I walk away from the majority of presentations without something to do. And I feel unchanged and uninspired. And that was actually the whole basis of creating my get their attention session about presenting. Um, you know, it was going to be the practical tactical tool set in 30 minutes, you know, not some abstract concept. Yeah. So how can presenters learn to deliver something exclusive and actionable? Yeah, I think the way I've framed this, uh, and I've worked with a number of, of speakers for our MozCon series, right? The folks create presentations for those and I give them feedback. In fact, we just had MozCon Local last week, but I try and make all of the it doesn't have to be every slide, but every set of slides that is conveying a piece of information or a concept or a tactic or a tool needs to sort of fit into this model, which is before I heard your advice, I was doing things this way. But after I heard your advice, I'm going to now start doing this thing differently, which will improve my results. And if I think if you can honestly assess all of the elements of your slide deck in that fashion, whether it's, you know, an individual slide that's talking about one tactic or an overarching theme that your presentation is giving. If you can assess from that perspective, I think that you can build something that's truly actionable. The, the one caveat to that is a lot of our audiences are very savvy. They read blog posts. They have, um, you know, they follow accounts on social media. And so they've seen a ton of this information before. And therefore, I think it's incumbent upon all of us as presenters to do our research, to find out what's already out there and accessible and has been seen by thousands of people before versus what's truly unique. What is something hey, this audience, there's no way they've heard this before. <laughs> um, and that's very different with different audiences. So, you know, for example, if someone comes to speak at MozCon, oh my God, it's so hard. It's, uh, Dharmesh Shah, who's the uh, co-founder of HubSpot and a friend of mine, we, we co-founded Inbound.org together. Dharmesh said, 
the MozCon audience is the toughest audience I've ever spoken in front of and might be the <laughs> toughest audience in the world. <laughs> okay, I won't be putting a call for speaker application. I don't one. know. It's really, it's one of the things that frustrates me, right? Because that, uh, mm-hmm. You'll never see lower speaking scores than Moscon, <laughs> right? Those same presenters who got, you know, 10 out of 10 across the board at five other events this year will come to Moscon and it's like, yeah, that was like a seven. So there's no bell curve. It's just flat. <laughs> it's really tough. Um, but for example, I'm speaking uh, next, is that next week? Yeah. No, two weeks at Digital Book World in New York to mm. marketers who primarily work for publishers. Um some of them are editors, some of them are authors themselves. Most of them are the marketers that are employed by publishers whose job is to help authors sell their books. Mm-hmm. And their digital marketing savviness tends to be much lower, right? They're they're mostly unfamiliar with a lot of the techniques and practices that uh, professional SEOs use, that uh, professional web advertising buyers use. Um, and so there's a lot of information that is just basic. Um, this is how this is how an RLSA campaign uh, remarketed list for search advertising in Google works. This is how Facebook's custom audiences works. And yes, if you have an email list for a book of people who signed up to get notified, you can upload that email list to Facebook and then show that specific audience particular ads, and you have a lower cost per acquisition generally of those folks. So you know those kinds of things that are probably well-known to your audience and to mine are less well-known to these folks. And I think that's part of the job of a presenter is to dig in deep with the conference organizers, uh, to identify a few folks who you know are going to the event, and then to look at their profiles and their LinkedIn page and see who they are and what they do and what they know so that you can deliver the right level of information. So that research tip is definitely one that I'm going to start using because, you know, I'll I'll tailor my keynote session as best as I can. But it's funny, every time I do it, I keep thinking, everyone already knows all this stuff. And so far, that has not been the case. (laughs) I'm lucky. (laughs) I think this is hard too. I suspect particularly on speaker ratings. So one of the things, I don't know if you found this to be true, but this has been my experience, which is that the folks who are most, the the pickiest, Mm -hmm. the ones who already feel like they know everything and they paid this money to come to this conference and they're feeling frustrated that they haven't gotten anything actionable out of it. They're the ones who are most likely to fill in the speaker survey Mm -hmm. uh, forms. (laughs) And so (laughs) you get a a biased group. The people who are like, wow, everything was just amazing. Mm -hmm. They're not going to read that email. Well, I've, I've found both sides of the spectrum. I found some people say, best one of the conference. I loved it. And then the other one, like for someone that talks about, this was one of my favorite comments for someone that talks about keeping the attention of your audience. She sure didn't keep mine. And I was like, Oh my, my heart. But you know, and there's people's perspective, their own lenses are biasing them as well. There's a lot of psychology behind that. But yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. Now those middle of the road, like, yeah, good stuff. You don't get those. For sure. Yep. <laughs> for sure. It's pretty demoralizing. I mean, I read my speaker feedback religiously for years. And for many of my early years, it was an exercise in futility and <laughs> self-disgust <laughs> and frustration, right? So. Yeah. I, I usually have a tissue box on standby when I get my <laughs> scores. <laughs> 
So I want to jump back to actually the Whiteboard Friday on presenting. Yeah. Loved all the rules, 100% on board, but there was a few experimental ones at the back that caught my attention. And one was to never, ever practice. (laughs) The other was to wait until the last minute to create the deck. And my cortisol is spiking right now just saying those words because I... I'm a preparer at heart. So were they sarcastic or if not, you know, I'd love to hear a little more about that. You know, the reason I was very specific about saying, hey, these are experimental. They work for me. They might not work for you. Mm -hmm. The big reason that I don't practice my presentations is because I found that when I got up on stage uh, after practicing a presentation, my emotions and my delivery felt rehearsed rather than authentic. Hmm. Uh, and I watched it. This could be the case of I haven't studied it enough, but I watched a video of myself doing that after one. And I thought, gosh, that's just not you. That's not that's not Rand. Right. I um, I very much speak from the heart when I get up on stage. I like to treat it as though we're just having a conversation, you and I, and you're in an introvert place right now. And so you're going to let me do most of the talking. Um, and that's fine. Like we're, uh, I feel really good about that conversational, comfortable, approachable style of presenting. And um, I I like, you know, I like on stage when a slide comes up and it pisses me off. Right. (laughs) I noticed that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And that is very hard to script. Yeah. It's very hard to put that, that anger and the authentic anger of, you know, damn it, Google, why did you say this when it's clearly not true? Or why did you say this? And then three months later, reversed your position. And all that work that all of these poor marketers did is now useless. And that really, you know, it gets my ire up. But if I've practiced, if I've rehearsed that presentation, that anger comes from an inauthentic place. Hmm. Uh, And so that's why the what I try to do is know the order of my slides very well and know what's on them, but be prepared for some spontaneity on the stage. It's so funny because I come from the opposite direction and I'm not saying at all, this is the right way. I have a background in musical theater, so I'm accustomed to memorizing scripts and conveying them in a conversational way. So I I usually script as if I'm having a conversation, but I do find, you know, when I've watched myself that I can sound a little mechanical. I've been cited as like two Ted and that's, that's a growth area for me. It's hard because the way I lay out my slides is there's a bit of uh, anticipation and buildup where I reference what's coming. And to do that, it requires a little bit of advanced scripting, but, um, And I think this is different for every different presenter, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why I say, if this works for you, great. This is what works for me. It may not work for you. Sure. And the same thing is true with the, um, you know, with the other element around building your slides, you know, 48 hours. (laughs) I I can't even breathe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's for me, that is something where, well, two things. One, uh, in my experience, at least for me, work expands to fill the time allotted. So mm-hmm. if I leave myself uh, three weeks to build a presentation, it will take me three weeks. And if I leave myself mm-hmm. one day, right, one Saturday, it'll get built that one Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, and not necessarily be better if I gave myself three weeks. So <laughs> right. that uh, that's that's something that's worked for me. I don't know if it works for others. Uh, it's just an experiment. 
Well, I think I'm, I'm taking that away for a growth point. Maybe there's a happy medium that I can find because I do want to see more approachable and spontaneous. So that's, that's my job for this year. I mean, I think, yeah, the, the theater background is interesting. I, I have always been amazed by this and I go to a lot of um, plays and musicals because I, I love the theater, but I don't know how actors and actresses can, can get up there and deliver <laughs> that authentic emotion. Mm -hmm. each time. I think that's really, that's an incredible skill. So uh, in a recent article I came across called How to Present Like Rand, I thought that was fun. Um, oh, really? Yeah. I'll send it to you. Um, you were noted as having a delightful mad scientist persona on stage. And I definitely saw that come through when I watched your, um, your 2013 MozCon keynote. So is that you all the time? Or do you have a prep routine that kind of gets you psyched up to embody that? I would say it is not me all the time, but especially for that particular keynote, which was essentially a, a bunch of experiments that I ran. I think he even wore a lab coat on stage. <laughs> I, I remember a, like a soccer jersey. Oh, 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 okay. Yes, that was a different one. But I also ran some experiments in that one. Uh, <laughs> you know, and this is this is part of my mission around transparency and making search engine optimization. Uh, and the search engine's operations more accessible to people, right? I think one of the things that I like to do is when, you know, if Google says, hey, do things this way, this is how it works, I like to poke that bear, right? I want to find out, is that is that accurate? Is that um, really what's going on? There was a there was a great example uh, just this past week, you know, Google, well, a few, many months ago, Google had said that uh, linking out to other websites from your own site uh, was not necessarily something they used in the, you know, to positively rank your website. Mm -hmm. So I remember, you know, there's no particular reason why you should link out, like link out if it's good for your visitors, but don't worry about Google. Google doesn't care. Okay. Um, and so this team in the UK ran this awesome set of experiments. They built a bunch of, um, you know, made up keywords, made up uh, words and phrases. Uh, they built, I think it was 20 different websites and they uh, tested this where they had a bunch of pages that linked out to good sources, mm -hmm. um, you know, places like the BBC and to Wikipedia and to, um, you know, trustworthy health sites and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they had a bunch of pages that didn't link out at all. And consistently, every single time, uh, the top five results, they made, you know, whatever, five pages on the site for uh, that did link out and five that didn't. And the, consistently, every time the ones that linked out ranked better than the ones that didn't. Wow. Uh, and it was, you know, it was so perfectly consistent across all of these sites mm -hmm. that, you know, it's kind of a, hey, you know what? I think Google didn't tell us the truth. <laughs> I, uh, you know, and I'm sure that whatever language they use, they usually use cagey language so that there's so always <laughs> some way they can um, get out of it. But Plausible deniability. Exactly, exactly. And so, yes, I definitely have that. Um, I don't know if it's mad scientist, but it is deeply uncomfortable with believing in authority just because they say something. <laughs> oh, that resonates with me on so many <laughs> levels outside of even this, these walls. But uh, yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah, you and me both. <laughs> 
So that keynote was an epic hour and 15 minutes long. And, you know, TED Talks are kept to 18 minutes because research shows that for a single presenter to maintain attention, you get maybe 18 minutes. But I was amazed. You kept the momentum the whole time. There were no dead valleys, as I call them. So what are some of the strategies you have for keeping an audience engaged for that long? A few things. One is, and I do this only semi-intentionally, but I think part of it is uh, to keep my own (laughs) excitement and enjoyment (laughs) level up while I'm on stage. Mm -hmm. I try not to have a presentation that is all one format. Like, Mm. hey, unless it's very short, in which case I will do this. But, you know, here's a tool and here's how you use it and here's how you get value from it. And here's another tool and here's how you use it and here's how you get and here's another one. I'll usually do here's a story. Here's here's a narrative, right? This is this is a thing that happened. And now here's a problem that came out of that narrative. And now here's a potential solution and here's how you can use that tool to do this. And you know what? Let me tell you another story when this didn't work and when you're going to have to do something different. And, you know, it, it's maintaining that um, uh, variety of style and of type of content. I think very often in a presentation that's between 30 and 45 minutes, what works really well for me is to uh, start with a narrative that presents a problem uh, and then present you know, a number of actionable solutions and ways to combat it, um, often even in a numbered list, right? Like, hey, here's, here's five things we can do to fight against this, or here's the six elements that uh, make up this new thing that Google's doing. Mm-hmm. And that works really well for me. That uh, presentation you watched is probably the last time I did something over an hour. I rarely, <laughs> rarely, rarely do anything over 45, 50 minutes nowadays. Well, that's still pretty epic, but... Those, that's fantastic. And, you know, I, I love the whole hero villain approach for storytelling, you know, yeah. and your Yoda, the audience is Luke and <laughs> Darth is whatever Google is doing or not saying yep. Um, yep. fully. So I love that. And I love changing up the, the type of content that you use. So that's great advice. And, you know, there's another element that you use really well. It's very challenging, which is humor. So you used humor to point out terrible marketing, which is great, and about overcoming the fear of humor in marketing. But presenting with humor is terrifying, terrifying. (laughs) I've had, you know, I've, I've run things past like a small internal focus group and they're like, no, 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 don't do that. So how do you, how do you, you know, so confidently incorporate humor into your presentations? It's interesting because most of it is some combination of this makes me laugh and that's enough and unintentional humor. Um, So I will say that, you know, a good amount of the humor that I present, uh, for example, at at MozCon Local, I was using a slide where I featured lemurs in place of marketers. Right? So my lemurs were like my marketers who were doing the work. And so they, you know, they're the, they're sort of the actors in, in my little mini play, which was about three quarters of the way through the presentation. And for some reason, I decided that uh, I was going to give one of the lemurs who looked particularly grumpy uh, an old grandfather's name, uh, Mortimer. <laughs> and I, I don't know, it just, I looked at him, he looked like a Mortimer. And... <laughs> For some reason, you know, I explained this to the crowd like, hey, guys, I want to introduce you to the old grandfather of lemurs. This is Mortimer. (laughs) Right. And people some people think it's humorous. 
I will say this. I have, I have presented uh, what I thought was humorous content before. Nobody laughed. Mm. They, they didn't even crack a smile. And so almost always when I, when I see people do that, I'll just say to the audience, gang, I, look, the jokes don't get any better from here. <laughs> You're going to have to laugh at these terrible ones. There's just no option. And that'll usually kind of crack up the crowd and wow. then we can move on and they sort of get the sense of like, oh, OK, he's he's not funny, but I can laugh at him anyway. That's pretty audacious being that self-aware and just calling them out to the mat like that. I mean, I, I had a recent experience where the same exact jokes floored the room, rolling in the aisles. And then a few months later, it was like the pin dropping and you could just feel that audience is not mm, they're just not. Come on. So I don't know. I kind of like that. I don't know if I'm brave enough to try that, but I might. I had a crazy experience. Well, not too great, but a little odd. Let's put it that way. Last year, I had created a presentation on this was on search ranking factors. And I featured uh, I featured Donald Trump as kind of my villain uh, <laughs> in this. Right. He was he was the one making kind of outlandish statements, as is his want. Uh, but then I, I realized I, I was standing in front of a room of uh, suburban North Carolinians, and I didn't actually check with the organizers to see what the relative political leanings <gasps> might be. <laughs> and so oh, no. right, I literally – I'm about to get to the slide. I can see it on my laptop that the Donald Trump slides are coming up. <laughs> <laughs> and so I sort of like pause myself half in, in the presentation, and I say to the back of the room uh, – Hey guys, the point of the organizers, I think one of them was named Mike. I was like, Mike, did you did you run through this slide deck before <laughs> I got up here and presented it? And he was like, No, this is this is the first time, right? I'm just yelling out to him uh, through the crowd. <laughs> and I said, Okay, well then we're gonna have to set some ground rules here. So first off, you guys should all know that I'm from Seattle, Washington, where <laughs> where weed is legal, where uh, you have to be, you know, left of most Europeans in order to live in the city limits. Um, and so now now that being said, you can understand where I'm coming from. OK, now we can proceed to the next set of slides. Wow. And so I think it's that, um, you know, willingness to be self-effacing and to call yourself out and just not uh, – yeah, not take yourself too seriously or that or the idea of being on stage too seriously. I think that works well when you when it's very natural um, and it's tougher when it's kind of a, you know, nerve wracking. I'm up there sweating. Kind of thing. <laughs> I know it's it's a real challenge to sometimes create that relatability when you're up there, when on the one hand, you're trying to be confident and authoritative, but sometimes that can take on a persona of righteousness and, you know, uh, on a pedestal. But I have found that the more self-deprecating that I am, <laughs> and I, I give myself so much material <laughs> for doing so, <laughs> it just never ends. Um, you know, the more that I do that, that when I come out with those profound moments of trying to create a moment for them and being authoritative, I'm still not getting too high and mighty where 
they're like, oh, wait, she lost me because I am, I am one of you. I have suffered through this. I'm still on this journey, but I'm offering you a tool belt to knock down the barriers that I experienced. So that's great. And again, that it takes so much courage to do that. I've seen the sweating you know when that presenter is starting to get that confidence shaken and you're you're hearing the voice waver and I I send them like mental beams to like I'm here I got you like don't worry you're you're on top of this it's okay yeah <laughs> and guess what everyone in the audience has had this happen to exactly, them exactly exactly you know as much as they are stone faced right now they're thinking about that right now so you know just remembering that that's so great so what are some of the biggest pet peeves that you have about the presentations that you you must see i don't even know how many but you must see so much so lay it on us number one hate it more than anything can't stand it and so many even great presenters do this which is they place multiple pieces of information written information in particular uh, on a single slide with no animation, like it's all just there. And that drives me bananas. So for example, I hate bullet points anyway, but a slide <laughs> that has three or four bullet points on it. And this, you know, you open up the slide, there's the three or four bullet points. You're talking about the first one and everybody else is doing what? They're reading ahead and they're ignoring you. And then once you get to the second one, they're still ignoring you and they're just waiting for the next slide. When it's it's not hard at all to turn that into three different slides, right? <laughs> One slide with a title of the first thing you were going to talk about, the first bullet point and some sort of visual, a second slide with a visual, a third slide with the visual that that alone will upgrade the quality of presentations massively just by itself. Um, and I've seen people do, you know, beautiful slides where multiple pieces of information are on it. And it's still one of those gosh, just, just show me the first piece and then, you know, like fade in the second one and then fade in the third one when you get to that point in the conversation because it, it's just bananas to have it all on the slide. I think if I could change one thing about professional presentations, that would be it. It's almost as if you have to pay for every slide that you create, like pay money. Yeah. <laughs> because there is this aversion where, but, but that's, that's so many slides. And during my get their attention session, I reveal that that session is over 150 slides long in a half hour, Yeah, but hoping no one noticed because I was leading them through and they were supporting each of my ideas one at a time. And it's, it, that aversion is so interesting to me. I don't quite understand it, but I, I think there's like a... I need to create rich slides that have a bunch of depth and value. And each slide <laughs> has to do that as opposed to, oh, no, wait, I can make a slide per sentence hmm. and no one will care. That's totally fine. Right. And strategic animation is one of, I think, the most under leveraged tactics to use. You know, I, I call it the trench coat flash. That's what I think bullet points are. You're just yeah. whoop, showing all the goodies. Uh, so I prefer, you know, the the strip tease, <laughs> you know, that, that works age old technique that has worked for century or millennia, you know, it, but it works for this too, because you're, you're actually increasing their attention by generating anticipation for what's coming next. So, yeah, I, that's the, that's the amazing thing about having like a, a blank slide where the left third of the slide is filled mm -hmm. and and the whole audience knows that the second, you know, the middle third and the right third are coming. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's so much more engaging than here's the whole thing. Now I'm going to talk you through left, middle and right panels. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. So, um, you know, before we move on to the next segment, I want to ask you who inspires you as a professional speaker that the listeners, you know, would do well to follow. Uh, my professional speaker crush for many, many years, the person I was always trying to emulate was Avinash Kaushik, mm-hmm. who, you know, is at, has been at Google in a number of different roles for, for many years now um, and wrote web analytics an hour a day and uh, I think another book as well. He runs the blog Kaushik.net and he's, um, he's a, I think he's a very expensive speaker. I think he's nowadays in the twenty twenty five thousand dollars um, $25,000 to get him booked for a keynote. But... He uh, he donates all that money. Really? Yeah. Uh, I don't think a lot of people know that, actually. I'm not sure if he makes that super public, but he does. Wow. He does donate it all. He basically the only reason he charges so much is to limit the uh, number of events that he does. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he is just phenomenally well versed in creating passion and inspiring an audience and he breaks so many rules so well. <laughs> it's really remarkable to see him uh, on stage. And so he's been a presentation crush of mine. I've tried to emulate him many times. I think I've I've learned now that the best person to emulate is me. Like I should be me. Avinash should be Avinash. You should be you. Mm-hmm. Um, trying to be someone I'm not is uh, not a great way to go. But I've certainly learned a tremendous amount from watching him and seeing how he builds slides and how he um, carries an audience with him. Absolutely. You know, it's so funny that you mentioned him. I saw him keynote my first eMetrics in DC. It was like 2009. And I was struck by that confidence, wrapping, just pulling the audience in, showing such deep passion. And it's so funny because he had a conversation with one of my past guests. His name is Stefan Hamel. It was episode 13. And he asked Avinash for some feedback on his presentation. And Avinash told him, your passion makes up for your polish. And that is interesting because before you talked about how this audience is so forgiving if you're really giving them something actionable to walk away with. And he made the argument that if you're passionate, that can overcome a lot of gaps in presentation polish. I think that can help too. Yeah, I would say I've seen, particularly with the events that I go to, uh, I have seen a lot of uh, forgiveness of lack of all of those things, except the, you didn't give me actionable takeaways that are going to improve my results tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, every, almost every other sin, right? Uh, <laughs> even at, you know, you drone on with a monotone voice and, you know, it's kind of hard to listen to you, but, oh my God, these tips are gold, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> that, that works fine. Or, oh, these slides are, you know, not that great, but geez, the, the value, like mm-hmm. just trying that one thing you told me about, that's incredible. I'm, I'm doing that. Um, you, you can get a lot of forgiveness if you can nail that one thing. So focus on value no matter what, but extra credit is jack up that personality and passion. And I mean, certainly if you're looking to be invited <laughs> to give keynotes or if you're looking to, you know, become a, um, a professional presenter, Right. Someone who gets paid to speak and that kind of thing, rather than someone who is speaking essentially to bolster their business and their credibility and to, you know, bring people to their website uh, and potentially convert them. And that's, again, going back to 
coming from a place of serving the audience rather than serving yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think that's, it's, that's a, you know, it's a hard thing for a, uh, a speaker to essentially consider, Hey, I'm going to spend a lot of time and a lot of money getting to this place. Um, you know, I'm sacrificing all these other things that I could be doing. I'm going to spend, you know, days or weeks ahead of time preparing for this and building these slides. You know, I don't know what it's like for you, but for me, I would say every 10 minutes of presentation time is between three and four hours of creating the presentation. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, <laughs> at least. <laughs> right. Which means, you know, which means a 40 minute presentation is uh, at least 12 hours, a minimum of 12 hours of prep work building the slides and oftentimes more. Sure. And so all those sacrifices and then, you know, for a lot of speakers, it's a, OK, now what do I get in return? And so the, the stage is where they think they're supposed to get the thing in return. Mm -hmm. When in fact, the, it, it's almost the opposite. The more you give and the less you expect, the more you will receive in the weeks and months and years after that presentation. That's, that was exactly the whole idea in The Go-Giver. It was one of my favorite books that I've read this year, uh, Bob Berg, where all of the abundance, and this now we're getting really philosophical, but all of the abundance that you can attract into your life comes from a serving perspective and giving. I love that. And I just, I think that applies so much here. Yeah, I agree. Good stuff. So Rand, I call the next segment the upgrade, which is a power tip for PowerPoint, Excel, other tools that we use in our trade to present better. So do you have anything fun for us? Well, let's see. You mentioned the power of well-done animations. Mm -hmm. um, and one of my favorite tactics uh, in a slide deck is when I've got, let's say, between five and 10 things that all influence something else. And I want to present that information very rapidly, um, but I don't I don't have time to walk through each one on a different slide. So, for example, let's say that I, I want to talk about um, why people might buy a book. And I want to say things like, well, look, what influences them is things like the cover and the author and their familiarity uh, with the words. The title is going to influence people, whether they've heard of it before, where they've seen it, how many times they've seen it, where it is in the bookstore or on the web, uh, who endorses it. Right. So all these different things I want to mention. What I'll often do is I'll create a slide that has that initial concept in the middle. Mm -hmm. And this is very easy in PowerPoint. And then a bunch of uh, these different elements just written out all, all encircling, you know, in different uh, circles or rectangles or whatever you want, uh, all around that main point with arrows pointing to them. And then each one will animate in right after the other. And this is really easy to do in PowerPoint. You can grab each of them. Uh, you can go to the animation pane and then select a, you know, fade in after the last one and it'll nicely cascade them all. And when the slide pops up, it's great. That first concept comes up and you click this presenter button one more time and then all these things show up around it. And I've seen so many people take that slide and <laughs> screenshot it and use it on their blogs later and write about it. Um, it's just a powerful way to get across this idea of a bunch of different elements influencing a concept you're talking about uh, in a nice graphical way. And of course, we are visual creatures by nature, and we're designed to be alerted to motion. 
Yeah. So I think that's great. And I'm going to be stealing that too. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Please do. Please. I mean, <laughs> especially for presenters who are thinking about like, oh, I was going to make a slide that had those 10 things in bullet points. Mm-hmm. Oh, come on, kill those bullet points, you know, turn them into these. Diagram. Yeah, this diagram that, that shows it. Fantastic. So this is our final question. Imagine this very plausible scenario. You're competing in the World Churros Eating Competition in Melbourne when you suddenly choke, fall off your chair, and into a rip in time, and you're brought back to the precise moment you're about to give your first presentation. It totally happened. So when you're thankfully no longer choking, what would today you say to then you? First off, uh, churros are one of my very favorite things in the world. So well played. (laughs) I I thought you were going to say I was about to die, and I was going to say it was a worthy death. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because, you know, churros are amazing. Uh, (laughs) let's see the first presentation. I think, I mean, the advice that I want to give myself is not actually around my presentations. Uh, there's some other big business picture stuff that I effed up over (laughs) the years that I'd really like to be like, Brand, damn it. Don't do this thing in 2012. (laughs) Um, But that being said, if we're talking specifically about presentation advice, I think one of the biggest things uh, that I messed up early in my career was that I thought I had to present a professional, practiced, um, polished sort of you know, business suit version of me. And I literally would. I, I, I wore suits and ties on stage mm-hmm. for a long time early in my career because uh, I thought that was the thing to do, right? Look, look professional, be professional. Mm-hmm. And instead, what's been so effective for me, especially the last five or six years, is to be my, my authentic self. I think that audiences deeply resonate with authenticity. They deeply resonate with, oh, this is a person just like me who has passion and cares about things and makes mistakes and can laugh at himself and, you know, uh, is not just a corporate shill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that, that would be that'd be the big advice I'd have given myself back then. I love it. Just like we said before, self-deprecating, just be you. I'd love it. So, Rand, unfortunately, this glorious moment must come to an end. I just want to thank you so much for taking the time today and just being a massive inspiration to so many people, not just as a digital marketer, but as a professional speaker. And I know that I've become a better speaker just doing this episode. Oh, my gosh. Very, very kind. And I I tremendously appreciate you having me. (laughs) So tell the listeners where they can keep up with you in case they don't know already. Sure. Uh, So my Twitter account is my most active uh, social account, and that is at Randfish. You can also find me blogging at moz.com. Okay. So all of those links and everything we've mentioned today is going to be on the show notes page for this episode. So thank you again. It's been a real treat, and I really look forward to possibly meeting you in a few weeks at Conversion XL, I think. I can't wait. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Leah. I love my job. I love my job. Oh, that was so awesome. (laughs) Rand obviously has had a profound impact on our industry. I think he's just one of the most significant figures just in, in online marketing, but also as a professional speaker. And it was amazing to hear some of his behind the scenes tips on 
not just creating small presentations, but if you're interested in taking your presenting career to a whole new level, exactly how to do that and create incredibly memorable, teachable moments for your audience. So I want to thank you so much for listening to this amazing episode of the Present Beyond Measure show. If you've liked what you've heard, please hop on over to iTunes to subscribe, leave a rating and review. Ratings and reviews are so appreciated because they affect the rankings of the show and help other practitioners and speakers like yourself find this valuable content. And I'll always be reading out my favorite reviews on future episodes. To catch all of the resources we mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 018. You can get all kinds of good stuff there, including those exclusive discounts uh, for registering at our upcoming speaking engagements. And I would love if you could leave me a comment or suggestions on the page because I want to hear about the challenges you face when you're presenting information, small audience, large audience, whoever, your boss, (laughs) anything you'd like me to talk about here. Or you can tweet me a question for the show by including my Twitter handle, which is at Leah and just include the hashtag PBM as in present beyond measure. And I'll leave you with a little bit of presentation inspiration from, you guessed it, Mr. Rand Fishkin. This is from his incredible MozCon 2013 keynote that we mentioned. And that is, true transparency is letting data win instead of opinions. Data instead of opinions. I couldn't have said it better myself, oh wise one. Let data win. Namaste. that's a wrap. I just committed the cardinal sin of podcasting. Hello? Yep, I'm here. Oh. (laughs) Let's see, what's the the right word? I'm gonna steal that. Well, I'll trade you, I'll trade you acting classes for... Slide decks? (laughs) I'll I'll make your slide decks. Thank you. Yes, please. Terrible. He's a friend of mine, but I was very harsh with him. Self love, man. Gotta do it.